Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of PathPod. This is our next edition of Beyond the Scope. Your host today from Loyola University is Dr. Kamran Mirza. You can find him on Twitter at KMIRZA. In this episode, you'll hear the interview he recorded May 12, 2020, with Michael Schubert, editor of The Pathologist magazine, who's on Twitter at MichaelPathMag. And here's your host, Dr. Kamran Mirza. Hey everyone, this is Kamran Mirza from Loyola University Health System. Today in our segment, Beyond the Scope, we are talking to Michael Schubert, editor of The Pathologist. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's uh, really, it's always fun to talk to you. You and I are friends, uh, as many of our listeners will know. And so I know certain things about like, you know, how you grew up and how you got into this whole business of becoming the editor of The Pathologist, but I really want our listeners to know as well. And so how about we start uh, with Michael growing up? Um, You know, I know that you were uh, on different continents growing up and, you know, how that was like and how you got into science. Yeah, I was born in Canada and I lived there for just about four years. And then my parents moved us to Austria for my dad's work. So I lived in Austria for a while. And then as I got older, I lived you know, in Canada again, in the UK, in France for a little bit, in America. So I got a chance to see a lot of different things. And I guess I started getting into science really early when I was about three or four years old. I told my mom that I didn't know if I wanted to be a scientist or a doctor and what could I be that mixed the two of them together. And she was like, you should be a geneticist. So I was like, I'm going to be a geneticist. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to be it. I did my undergrad at the University of Alberta, which is in Canada. And then I did a postgrad at a university in America. And then I went to go do graduate school at Penn State. And I was at their College of Medicine in Hershey. That's nice. How was, uh, you know, how was living there or that experience in the U.S.? Was it very different from your experience in Canada before, as far as the sciences and education is concerned? It was actually more different than I thought it was going to be. I just kind of figured America would be basically the same culture as Canada. And I mean, obviously, there are different cultures all across America, so I can't speak to the universal experience. But both North Carolina and Pennsylvania were very different to my experiences in Canada. And I was quite surprised. Approximately at that time, the pathologist was coming into being or, you know, was, um, you know, being put together. So how did you come across this opportunity? I joined the pathologist just after it started. So my first work, I believe, appears in the third issue. Um, So I got very lucky to jump on right at the beginning. Uh, The company that publishes it, Texera Publishing, was hiring for an associate editor, but they didn't sort of say which magazines. So I ended up working half of my time on The Pathologist and half of my time on a magazine for ophthalmologists. Right. Um, But clearly you can see which direction my interests took me. Oh, and we love it. We love that you came this direction. So, so tell us about The Pathologist really quickly, like, you know, what the scope of the magazine is. You know, I'm a huge fan of the, of the magazine, but uh, kind of tell us who your readership is, you know, what you guys talk about, and just a little description of The Pathologist magazine. So The Pathologist is about five and a half years old now. And despite the name, it's not just for pathologists, it's for everyone involved in pathology and laboratory medicine. So everything from medical lab scientists, histotechnologists, geneticists, um, molecular, everything that falls under the scope of diagnostics and lab medicine. And the way I view it is pretty simple. I kind of view the pathologist as a megaphone. 
the idea is to amplify the voices of people in pathology and lab medicine. So it's not us writing articles about pathologists. It's us helping pathologists and lab medicine professionals to share their experiences and their opinions. That's really, really awesome. Every issue uh, always has something very interesting uh, to me, to be honest. And I, and I love that. I love this description of that it's for the entire pathology and laboratory medicine community. And, um, and I think that, you know, it resonates in multiple ways in the laboratory and, you know, from even from your letters, like the editorials that you write to different sections of it, to even the pathology art, I actually find that there's some, something of interest for everybody. And, and I love how inclusive it is that way. That's kind of my goal. I don't want to put, you know, too much of any one thing and then end up making someone else feel left out. About what you've learned um, about the world of pathology and laboratory medicine that you may not have known before. Um, and how you think maybe uh, the United States has a slightly different approach to pathology than the rest of the world, or do you think it's the same? That's a big question. I mean, yeah. obviously, there are a lot of similarities, and then there are differences on top of those. Um, I find it interesting uh, the way sort of different regions divide up their pathology differently, so different kinds of training. Some people don't don't separate anatomic and clinical pathology at all. You do everything or nothing. Nice. Some people don't give you the choice of combining and you can only do one or the other. Um, I also find it really interesting how the sector divides up career-wise. For instance, in Canada and the United States, pathologist assistants are a huge part of the laboratory. Uh, in Europe, there is no such job title. Right. So, so who's, in, in, in Europe, who's taking over that job? Is it the pathologists themselves? I think part of the job in Europe is done by histotechnologists right. and similar professions, and part of it is done by the pathologists themselves, and there's kind of no in-between level. That's very interesting. That's very interesting I, because, you know, for example, I, so I'm a hematopathologist, um, and I know, you know, even when, where I did medical school, like hematopathology isn't necessarily a field of pathology as such, you know, in other parts of the world. Like there's, there are hematologists who do bone marrow aspirates and kind of sign out, uh, you know, the cases themselves. And hematopathology is quite a uniquely American experience. So, uh, so I can kind of, I can understand the slight differences uh, across the pond that way. So how have the meetings been? Have we been nice to you? What, what do you think of? If you were to think about pathologists and laboratory you know, professionals, um, at least in the United States and Canada, um, what's like, let's say, if you were to generalize, what would you kind of um, characterize us as? Everyone is lovely, uh, without reservation. Everyone's great. Um, people take different approaches to being great. Some people are jovial and personable. Uh, some people are very professional, but everyone is really lovely. Um, I think it just depends. Different meetings lend themselves to different approaches. Um, everyone is really eager to share their discipline. Everyone is really eager to share their knowledge. Uh, there's this huge spirit of cooperation. And I also find that a lot of people in the field of pathology and lab medicine have a really good sense of fun and that's something that I don't see in every sector. So congratulations, guys. I wish more people knew about it. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's, you I, know, obviously we, we like to toot our own horn that way. And so this is good because, you know, I, I've known from the start that, you know, we're, we're a very jovial bunch and it's, it's very nice to be part of the pathology and laboratory medicine family. But it's nice to kind of hear, hear about it, even if you are slightly biased because you're my friend. <laughs> Yeah, so, I really only threw that in to make you happy. Everyone in pathology has been amazing ever since I kind of joined the field in such as I have. Um, 
And I will say my one great regret so far is that I have never been to uh, Yuskat Pathologist Karaoke Night. Well, you you are welcome every every year. Uh, hopefully, we will keep having them in person as the, this pandemic evolves. But you are a hundred percent invited every single time. That'll that'll actually be a lot of fun. Um, so tell me, you know, you're talk- We we talked about how you became introduced to the pathology and laboratory medicine world naturally with your role uh, as the editor. Tell me, like before you before you came into contact with this world, like did you have any? Uh, perception about like how it would be and maybe something that surprised you or something that ended up being different about it? I have to admit to you one of my great shames, which is when I was applying to graduate schools, one of the ones that I applied to was the University of Toronto and I applied to their department of immunology. And they actually gave me a call and they said, we'd love to have you, but we think it would be great if you joined our department of pathology. And I said, thank you. And I didn't go. Oh, no. Oh, no. I didn't have a clear idea in my head, as so many people don't, of what pathology really was. So I declined the opportunity to go there. And I'm very sad about that now, of course, that I know what it is. But at the time, I thought that doesn't jive with my interest. And of course, it did. Pathology was a perfect fit for my interests, but I didn't know it. Right. And I think that's part of why I'm so... Uh, even though I'm not myself a pathologist, I'm so passionate about raising awareness because I so easily could have been in research pathology and I would have loved it. Well, I have good news for you. I mean, even though your graduate schooling wasn't in pathology, I think that you're still doing more for our field overall than you might have even done if you had actually completed that graduate program. So so there's no regrets there. I think that, that that's okay. Uh, but I think that you touch upon like a very interesting point, though, that in general, people when, they, you know, even with biology or genetics backgrounds, people don't understand um, you know, the scope of pathology and laboratory medicine or, or what, uh, you know, who we are, what we are doing, uh, you know, and how relevant we are to healthcare. Um, and so I think, you know, it's actually a great segue. I wanted to um, quote your nice editorial in the recent uh, uh, issue of The Pathologist. It's your letter from lockdown. Um, and, you know, it starts, you know, kind of head, the heading is that with a pandemic at hand, laboratory medicine professionals must no longer be hidden heroes. And I want to quote like a part of it because I thought it was just wonderful. Um, you know, you say that less commonly discussed is the laboratory's capacity to take on testing for up to 60% of the population. And that's on top of its regular workload. Laboratory staffing shortages have been reported for years and burnout levels were high long before COVID-19 was on the horizon. Now pathologists and laboratory medicine professionals are being asked to deliver long hours in risky circumstances for a patient population that may never be aware of the lab's role in their care. I think that that really you know, resonates with me. The fact that we can no longer be hidden, quote unquote, heroes and I wanted your thoughts on that. Uh, Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic might change the way people approach us? I think think I've probably never heard the phrase lab testing so many times in such a short period as I have over the last two, three months. Um, I think people are definitely becoming more aware. I did a quick informal survey of a few of my friends who don't know what I do for a living And I asked them, do you know who does your COVID-19 test? You know, somebody will take the swab and send it away, but then what happens to it? And one of them said, the lab tech, the lab tech is the person who runs it. And the other one said, I don't know. 
Right. All the other ones said, I don't know. So kudos to the one friend who said lab tech. That's pretty good. Right. Um, but I have to say, I think people are much more aware of the concept of testing and of what testing can do. But I think, I think they're still maybe not fully aware of who's involved in that and what it really means. So there's still progress to be made, I think. What is the role, basically, of media and you know uh, publications such as The Pathologist and others in trying to maybe change that narrative a little bit? Like, how do you think you know we could harness this um, this platform and hopefully make a change that you know once the pandemic is over, you know people can approach testing and pathology and laboratory medicine a little bit differently? Well, fingers crossed. The most of the audience of the pathologist already knows what pathologists and lab medicine professionals do. Right. But actually, I you can find a lot of people who aren't necessarily fully clear on whose role is what. Even people in one field of diagnostic testing or one field of lab medicine might not really fully understand what other fields in the same specialty do. Right. So there's still a lot of value in that. And I think part of the value of professional publications like The Pathologist or of peer-reviewed journals is maybe shining a light a little bit on that so that people can see on professional terms what the people in the lab are doing. Because, you know, uh, a doctor in some other specialty who might not really pay attention to an article in the local newspaper might pay attention to an article in a professional publication. Right. And then I think there's a huge role for the media in, in general in spreading this kind of information to the general public because how else are they going to find out not everyone gets the opportunity to phone up their own pathologist and ask questions um not everyone ever even knows that they have a pathologist so i think really educational events um publicity via things like media and publicity via things like social media which you don't need to rely on someone else for like right. an editor or a journalist are great ways to spread news to the general public. So, so I guess you, the long story short of my answer is I think there's a role for everyone to play. I think the media are really important, but I think individuals are also really important. No, that's, you know, that's a great perspective. Um, you know, an editor's perspective, I think that's so valuable. Um, so tell me, if you, if you were to come across a student, you know, a biology student or uh, someone with a science background who's uh, coming up the ranks in education and they were to be interested in becoming an editor like yourself, what, what would your advice be for them and how does one become an editor? Uh, my advice would be start writing. It doesn't matter what you're writing or who you're writing it for. If you want to start a Twitter and start teaching biology in 140 characters or less, do that. If you want to start a blog, start a blog. Um, if you want to start writing science articles for your university newspaper, do that. It doesn't really matter um, how you begin, but you have to begin by, by doing. You build up a bank of work and then you have something to show people, but you also get a lot of practice. So you can say, look at my Twitter, it's really popular, or look at my blog, here are my three favorite articles so you can see my writing style. Even if it's not popular, you've still got a bank of work you can show people. And the more you do, the better you get. So that's step one. And then step two is trying to find the actual work. And I think there are thousands of different ways to find a job, but 
honestly, the more you do, the more you talk to people about what you do, the better the word of mouth gets. And word of mouth is the best way. That makes sense. Um, what has been, let's say, one of the biggest highlights of your career as an editor of The Pathologist or something that really uh, you know, stands out as being very unique or different uh, during your career with The Pathologist? That's hard because there have been so many experiences and they've been so cool. I've really enjoyed getting to know everybody that I see repeatedly at meetings. Um, it's been a real highlight to get to travel to so many different places and just see so many different faces of pathology and lab medicine there. Um, I've really enjoyed learning more about different labs and their different approaches to things. Um, I guess it's really hard because I love my job. So I really enjoy everything I'm doing. There's, I can't name one standout experience. Maybe it would be the time that you came over to the pathologist booth and signed autographs on all of our magazines. Right, right. We're gonna cut that. We're gonna cut that part out. That's funny. I mean, yeah, it could be definitely. It was definitely one of my favorite parts of this whole experience with the pathologist. So uh, that's that's funny. Um, so I guess it would be unfair for me to ask if you have a favorite uh, article in the pathologist. And it's okay. You don't have to quote any of mine. That's all right. It goes without saying that mine are the best. Question. Um, no, I mean, you can ask it if you want, but I don't have one favorite article, so that's very diff difficult for me. Um, I know that some of our most read articles are ones that focus on the role of pathology in the wider community. So, for instance, um, the article that came out five years ago now on the stereotypes that people perceive of pathology uh, is still one of our most read articles, and it's still one of my favorites, partly because it's got really cute illustrations, um, but mainly because it really shines a light and provokes a reaction. And that's what I want. I want people to start thinking about these things and taking action. Um, another one, and I'm absolutely not saying this just because you're interviewing me, is the one that you wrote about reports, because it shows how your work has an impact on the wider medical community or doesn't. And if it doesn't, why doesn't it? And what can we do to fix it? Yeah, I really like articles that basically shine a light and sometimes are a call to action. So one of the things I signed up for recently was your COVID-19 curator, which I think is a very nice way to kind of, uh, you know, get to um, the specific and very like timely things about COVID-19. Tell us a little bit more about the COVID-19 curator. Okay, well, the COVID-19 Curator is a weekly newsletter that we put out, and the clue is really in the name, uh, curation, because the simple fact is scientific and medical professionals who are dealing with this right now don't have time to sit down and sift through 100 news articles and 100 journal articles every week. So what we do is we pick out the few that we think are key to professionals working in science and medicine and we basically give a one sentence or a two sentence summary of each article and then there's a link to click on if it's really relevant to you and you want to know more but this way people can sit down and in five minutes maybe ten minutes get an overview of everything that's happened that week that is really impactful um, and that's a cross-brand effort I'm the curator of it but I'm helped by people from other people at our publishing company who work on pharmaceutical magazines, analytical science magazines, um, things like that, so that we can make sure that every perspective that is important is represented. So, Michael, if somebody was to submit an article to you for consideration in The Pathologist, can you walk us through 
what the timeline is, like what goes through, you know, all the efforts that are put in to making that article a reality. Uh, what are the steps? So let's say you receive an email from me saying, you know, please consider the attached uh, manuscript as an article. Okay, so if someone sends me a manuscript that they've already written, as opposed to an idea or an interview or anything like that, then what I'll do is basically I'll acknowledge receipt and I'll take a look at it and I'll see if it fits in the pathologist. And most of the articles I receive do fit in the pathologist. So after that, what I'll do is I'll take it away and I'll do an edit. I'll make sure you know, it's readable. It's in the same tone that we use for most of our things. Um, it fits our house style guide. And I'll do all of that um, without changing the author's voice or the author's message because that's the key thing. And then it goes to our content director who does a quick review of it. Once those two stages are done, it goes back to whoever wrote it and they get the chance to do any edits, provide any feedback, make any comments, make sure the article is exactly as they want it before it goes to publication. Once that's done, we then have to decide where it fits in our publication schedule. So some pieces go out right away because they're very timely in nature or they're tied to an event or a piece of research that is happening right away. Other pieces sometimes wait for several months or even longer because they're meant for a specific subject or a specific event. So for instance, I know that I have um, a special issue coming out in November that focuses on digital pathology. Somebody might send me an article now and I'll say, can I save this for our November issue? Because it will reach the audience that you're talking to better in that issue than if I put it out right away. And of course, they can say no, and then I'll say, you know, we can put it in this issue or, well, we don't have room for it until here or anything like that. But I try my best to always make sure that any article that is submitted to me or any interview I do, anything like that, is placed maybe not in the next issue that comes out, but in the issue that will best speak to the audience that that person is talking to. That's my main goal. So one of my favorite things in The Pathologist, I guess because I'm a, uh, all pathology and laboratory medicine people are visual uh, people, is your gallery feature, which uh, includes beautiful representations of pathology as art. Uh, tell me about how that started, how, it, you know, how that whole idea came about. Well, pathology is a very visual discipline, and there's so much beauty in it. We're seeing photographs of people's work. We were seeing photo micrographs. We were seeing artist representations. And of course, on social media, we were seeing the hashtag path art, which people do sometimes for their beautiful art, sometimes for their funny art. Oh, this cell looks like a dog or here's a smiley face. And we thought that was great. And it was really the lab medicine community that inspired it because there's so much visual messaging in it that we thought it would be amazing if we could just gather these into a gallery of beautiful images. People love having their images published, um, bringing more attention to maybe their cause or their work, or in some cases, their art. Some of them are actually artists creating works based on pathology. So we decided to showcase it once, and it was so popular, and there were so many people interested in submitting that now we do it once a year. It's wonderful. You know, I have the feature in front of me right now and, you know, just pages upon pages of beautiful art. And I know that uh, your social media outlets also kind of promote these pictures as well. And it's definitely something if our, uh, if our listeners haven't uh, seen any of this, uh, they should definitely be looking into it. Another thing which I think is very cool, which is done through the Pathologist magazine, is your power list. So I know it's been like a few years now already. Tell us about the power list, you know, what goes into kind of curating it and what that whole process is like. 
Okay, well, we host the power list, but it's really, again, all down to the community. So what we do is for a period of time every year, it's about two months, we open nominations and everyone is welcome to nominate. You can nominate anyone. Um, the nominations are anonymous and we just collect all of the nominations in a spreadsheet. Uh, we do nothing to them. We just collect them and we write down all the nominator comments. Then once we close nominations, we tidy up the spreadsheet. We just, you know, we make sure everyone has an affiliation. Um, sometimes people have received hundreds of comments. And of course, the judges can't read hundreds of comments for every person. So for those, we select some of the most unique comments. And we just tidy up the spreadsheets. And then we send them to the judges. Uh, each year, we have a judging panel. Uh, the judges aren't announced publicly. And our judges, are. we try to select people from across as many different demographics as possible. So we have some younger and some older judges, some at early stage of career, some later, pathologists and lab medicine professionals in different specialties. Um, they're not all pathologists with MDs. So we get uh, medical lab scientists and pathologist assistants and people judging as well. So we try to cover as many bases as possible with our panels. Um, the judges receive their spreadsheets and then they have time to go through the spreadsheets, select everyone that they want to include. And we usually ask them to rank a set top number, top 10 or a top 20. It varies from year to year, depending on the format of our list, because the list format also varies from year to year. Sometimes we'll do a blanket uh, list of 100. Sometimes we'll separate into categories or focus on a specific group. One year we had a ride, rising stars, which was for early careers only. Uh, this year we have four categories with 20 finalists in each instead of 100 finalists across blankets. Um, so once the judges return their rankings to us, all we do is compile those rankings. So we have a point system which compiles the rankings from all of the judges into one long list. And then we publish the list. So really, we only curate again. Uh, it's the community that nominates, it's the judges that select, and then we just curate, tidy up, edit, and publish. So we write the biographies for the finalists. We, we usually talk to them via email or even on the phone, we get a few quotes to include in the list or we ask them a few questions. Sometimes they're serious questions like what advice they have for people who want to follow in their footsteps or how they got started in their careers. Sometimes it's a bit more fun, like the most unexpected moment of their career. So we like to try to get as much of the finalists' personality into the list as possible, which is why we tell people We'd like to publish a photo. You're welcome to submit your professional headshot if you want. But if you want to submit your vacation snapshot or an action shot of you in the lab, please do that instead because it's really, it's all about what you want to showcase. I really like that. And, you know, and over the years, like the list has included some amazing pictures and obviously fantastic individuals. And I think that that really makes it unique, this idea of, if, if, you know, hashtag I look like a pathologist, like in, you know, pathologists in their different roles and uh, different settings. I think that that's very nice and very cool to highlight. So, Michael, if someone has an idea in kind of a raw form, but, you know, and they have a thought about what they want to write about or publish in the, in the pathologist magazine, um, and it isn't a full-fledged manuscript, etc., how do they proceed? That's no problem at all. Um, honestly, just email me. Uh, you can use edit at thepathologist.com. It'll get to me. And then I'll start a dialogue with you about what you want to do with your piece. So it could be that um, 
an author might like some guiding questions to help them decide how to write about their idea. It could be that they want to have a chat on the phone about it and we can do an interview about it. It could be that they want to talk to other people or it could just be that they say, this is an area of concern for me. Um, it's an area of concern for my colleagues. We're not sure what to do about it. And then I can send them back some ideas. Well, we can take this tack. We can take that tack. Uh, here are the different types of articles. Here's where I think your idea would really fit well. And we develop it together. Um, the whole thing is a collaborative process. And in the end, it's the author's piece. So the author has to like it. That's very cool. And so your team is based out of the UK? Um, our team is international, actually. Some of us are based in the United States others in the United Kingdom, but uh, we all travel regularly and work out of our other locations. So I'd like to think that we're a, a truly international team. Um, and of course, with respect to our content, we welcome contributions from all areas of the globe. So one of the fun things about The Pathologist magazine in every issue is that you have a case of the month. Uh, was this a part of the original magazine as it came out or is it something that you included later? No, it's something that we decided to include later because pathology lends itself very well to that. There's a lot of diagnostic medicine that learns by example, and there are a lot of people posting examples. It's one of the things I see on Twitter that is most popular is people saying, here's my case, what do you think of it? Um, sometimes for genuine advice, other times because they want to use it as a teaching example for other people. So I thought it would be great if we got a case into the magazine every month that people could take on as kind of a personal challenge if they wanted to. Um, and that has, I think, so far been very well received. So it's a lot of fun and I'd like to continue doing it. And I hope that it provides somewhat of a service. Of course, as we've covered earlier, I myself am not a pathologist, so I'm not an expert. So we actually have someone at the University of Michigan, uh, Anna Maria Perry, who very kindly volunteers her time to curate the cases and just make sure they are essentially all up to scratch as teaching quality examples. So thanks very much to her for that. Wonderful. So if somebody has a case that they think might be relevant, they just reach out to you? Yeah, they're welcome to just contact me the same way they would for an article, same email, and tell me about their case. I will caveat, we have quite a few cases queued up at the moment. So Cases are always welcome. Everyone's always welcome to submit a case. Sometimes we do other things with cases, like put them in our In Focus series. But if you submit a case of the month, it might not come out right away. So, Michael, um, I always enjoy reading a mixture of peer-reviewed and non-peer-reviewed material that comes out in print. Um, I'm sure there are pros and cons and benefits and you know issues with with one or the other. Uh, you know, from an editor's perspective, tell me your opinion about peer-reviewed versus non-peer-reviewed material. Well, they're both vital, is my opinion. Um, obviously, science runs on the peer-reviewed article, and that has to happen because only, only a scientific or medical peer can decide when novel science is ready for publication. So I would never presume to judge that and... I rely on peer-reviewed research to give me my information as well. Um, but I think there's a lot of value in the type of article that the pathologist publishes in these sort of more conversational, less peer-reviewed ones. Um, peer-reviewed articles can often feel like you're reading them for work, as it were, and not all of them might inspire the sort of leisure time reading. Also, it's very difficult to publish certain topics in a peer-reviewed way. For instance, if you want to talk more about um, 
career advice or talk about mentoring and you haven't maybe conducted a formal study on it, but you want to share uh, your experiences. Or if you want to talk about things like wellness or uh, share how your training program works or talk about the value of Twitter homework. Um, not everything has a place in peer-reviewed literature, but it all has a place in learning. So I think both contribute equally to the overall picture of learning. I love it. Put uh, in a way that only an editor could. That's fantastic. Uh, very nicely said. So I, I know that this isn't necessarily relevant to our conversation, but I think that it's a very unique time in the world with this pandemic going on. And since you're in a geographically distinct location from me, I, I was wondering, you know, how is, how is uh, quarantine or shelter in place looking like for where you are? Well, actually, um, our prime minister just released some changes to the guidance last night. And what it's been looking like at the moment is so far, we're in lockdown. Uh, you're allowed out of your house once a day to exercise. Um, and you're allowed out of the house to do essential errands like shopping or to receive medical care or to provide care to a vulnerable person. And you're allowed out of the house if you are an essential worker doing a job that cannot be done from home. So they've just made some changes. And now you're allowed out of the house for unlimited exercise. Um, and if you cannot work from home, you're encouraged to go to work, even if you're not an essential worker. And they're developing some more nuanced guidelines around that. They're trying to decide when to reopen non-essential businesses, when to reopen schools. There's been some conversation about it, but they haven't issued specific dates yet. So I don't want to speak to that. Um, I will say there is lots of agreement with what the government is doing now. There's also lots of disagreement. So it remains to be seen exactly how that will fall out, whether people will adhere to the guidance, whether they'll respond well to the changes, whether some of the changes might be reversed based on what happens. Because one thing the government has said is everything will change back to the way it was if anything starts to change with the numbers, which I think is probably the best thing they said. Right. Well, you know, I, I think it speaks to the fact that we have to kind of be flexible and, and take it almost day to day to see how, you know, what, what effect is actually happening. Oh, I agree. We, there's so much conflicting information right now, and there will be for a long time as science gets to grips with it, because there's only so much work you can do in a day. So everyone can only do what they think is the best. Um, they can only decide, you know, is keeping people home going to be worse for them than letting them out for their mental health, um, for the security of their jobs, which they will need to survive even after the pandemic is over. I can only hope that everyone is making their best decisions they can based on the best information they can access. Amen. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. So as I've told the listeners already, The Pathologist magazine is one of my favorite magazines. And, and this was uh, a, a huge honor and a privilege to get to talk to you, Michael, as a podcast episode, as opposed to just a regular friendly banter that we typically do. Uh, and I'm sure that our listeners got a lot, uh, you know, of new information and interesting things that they learned about you. Uh, so thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to appear in one of your projects instead of the other way around. <laughs> That's perfect. This is PathPod, the pathology podcast.
Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.